The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to see some faces we have not seen in a while. It's great to meet some new faces. So again, if you're visiting with us today, thanks for joining us. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we dive into John 6, would you bow your heads with me as I share one more brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come, Holy Spirit, come, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to begin by asking all of us this question. When was the last time you were filled with fear? When I was a young parent, it seemed like every single night that I put our kids into their cribs as babies, I was filled with fear. As a parent of three, I remember swaddling our little babies and putting a little baby monitor on them and praying that all would go well with them each night. I prayed that each baby would sleep. They wouldn't roll over and find themselves on their belly and on their face. And they wouldn't have any major accidents. I, I prayed that, that um, in the case of Caden, our oldest, that he would not scale the walls of his crib like he often did around one years old and burn our house down. Can any parents relate to the fear of putting their little babies to bed in their cribs? As a young parent, I was always filled with fear looking back. Nonetheless, I don't think my fears come close to the fear a certain woman in Chicago, Chicago excuse me, felt in 2019. You see, about a year and a half ago, a woman named Maritza Sibbles looked at the baby monitor of her 18-month-old son and saw this picture. Now look closely. Can you see what's next to her baby? Maritza saw what appeared to be a baby ghost in the crib with her baby. Can you imagine? As the young mom would later go on and tell the Today Show, at first I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. I tried to ignore it, but it was really starting to creep me out. And to make matters worse, Maritza was home alone with her two little kids as her husband had to work late that night. It's unbelievable, right? 
to look in the baby monitor and see that? So what did the young mom do? Well, she kept checking on her son, and she even started taking pictures of the alleged baby ghost and sending them to family and friends asking for help and comfort. Quote, even though the first thought that popped into my brain was ghost, the rational part of my brain told me there must be some logical explanation. So I grabbed my flashlight and went to check it out, but there was nothing there. All night I stared at his monitor just waiting to see if the ghost moved, but of course it never did. Finally, when her husband came home and morning broke, they discovered the source of their fear. If we could show this picture. You see, apparently there was a mattress sticker on the baby's mattress that they had failed to remove. And typically the mattress cover or mattress protector would shield that sticker from the monitor. And yet the last time the parents had changed the sheets, they had failed to remove the sticker or put the mattress protector back on the mattress. Thus, even with a flashlight, they could not see the sticker, but somehow the sticker showed up through the thin sheets on the baby monitor, making for a long and terrifying night for the young mom. One can only imagine the relief Miss Maritza must have felt when she finally discovered the truth. Now turning our attention to our passage, we read a similar account of terror when the, the disciples or followers of Jesus think they also see a ghost in a storm in the night. What's happening? Can this be real? Is this the end are the type of questions they and we are sometimes left asking in the dark, right? Yet as we will discover today, just as a young mom in Chicago discovered in 2019, what we see and assume is not what's often real in life. So let's dive into John 6, shall we? The big idea, the big takeaway for us today is this, the path from fear to faith cuts straight through the heart of the storm. Let me repeat that. The path from fear to faith cuts straight through the heart of the storm. And to unpack this truth today, I'm going to do something a little different. We will be exposing three lies that we often assume as followers of Jesus. And those lies are, lie number one, if Jesus loved me, loves me, he will keep me from the storm. Lie number two, if Jesus loves me, I won't feel pain in the storm. And lie number three, if Jesus loves me, he will pluck me from the storm. So let's dive in. Lie number one, if Jesus loves me, he will keep me from the storm. Our passage begins. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come. The sea became rough because strong wind was blowing. 
First, let's talk about what's going on in here in our passage and talk about the context of this text. As Pastor Drew preached on last week, in the first part of John 6, there is the feeding of the 5,000, which actually would have been more like 15 or more thousand if you include kids and women. So in response, the crowd made up of not only hungry people, but hurting people suffering from oppressive Roman rule, they determined that Jesus is the messianic prophet in the line of Moses who'd come to set them free. And as a result, we read in John 6 earlier that they tried by force to make Jesus king. The problem, of course, is that the crowd, which had become a mob, were approaching Jesus through a misunderstanding of what kind of king they needed and what kind of king God would be providing. They needed a spiritual king, not a political one. Given the waywardness of every human heart, including their own, they needed a king who would repair a broken world, not destroy it. They needed a king who would extend God's mercy, not just his might. They needed a new kind of king, and so do we, but apparently they weren't ready or willing to see that truth or see Jesus for who he really is. And so after Jesus feeds the 5,000 or 15,000, we read in John 6, 15, that he withdrew to a mountain and went to pray by himself. That's the backdrop of our text, of our passage And so now as we turn our attention to what happens on the water, we see that the disciples also leave the crowd or the mob that night. Specifically, we read they get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, which is about 12 miles wide and 7 miles long, and soon find themselves exhausted and in trouble. They find themselves right in the heart of a storm. But there's one kicker. There's one detail that our passage does not explicitly tell us. We only discover it by diving a little deeper into the Bible and reading the parallel accounts of this story in Matthew and in Mark. You see, that detail is this. It's actually Jesus who sends his disciples into the darkness in a boat. It's actually Jesus who sends his disciples into the heart of the storm. In Matthew 14, we read, immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against it or against them. Now listen, the language here in Matthew 14 is very raw, Bryce. The storm was literally beating them. The storm was battering them. The storm was tormenting them. It is a picture Excuse me, it is a picture of misery and imminent 
danger. And yet the disciples, catch this, are in this place, in the heart of the storm, not because they were disobedient, but because they were obedient to Jesus' instruction. Isn't that interesting? He led them right into the storm. So what are we to make of the times in life when we aim to follow Jesus and end up nearly capsized in the process? When that friendship that would never fail us fails us, when that marriage that would never fail us fails us, when that company or group that would never fail us fails us. Even right now, at this very moment, my brother-in-law is sitting in a hospital room in the Czech Republic, totally isolated, in dealing with ongoing complications from his seventh open-heart surgery. And do you know the email he sent me right before this last surgery? Do we know of any churches that would want to partner with his church by coming over this summer to his country and sharing the love of Jesus with kids all around the city in which he lives? You see, Justin, my brother-in-law, is all about Jesus. And yet he is really struggling right now. These kinds of situations, they throw our hearts and our minds into a spin, don't they? Well, before we try to understand the why Jesus sometimes leads us into the storms, I just want us to understand that Jesus sometimes leads us into storms. In fact, this is the pattern we see throughout the Bible with those God loves and calls to leadership. Out of love, God asked Noah to build an ark and endure the wrath of men's criticism. Out of love, God called Moses to redeem his people only to deal with constant grumbling. Out of love, God anointed David to lead not excuse me, to lead only to have him flee from the very man he was sent to serve and protect. Out of love, God called Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles only to be beaten, stoned, imprisoned, and shipwrecked several times along the way. You see, it's precisely out of love, not a lack thereof, that sometimes God sends us into the storms. It may be mysterious in the moment, but it's, a, it's not a sign, excuse me, it's not a sign that God has abandoned you or me. God loves you and me both inside and outside the storms of life. This leads me to address lie number two. If Jesus loves me, I won't feel pain in the storm. Do you guys remember this phrase? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, this is a lie. Words hurt, don't they? What if I could change a word in that phrase? 
How does this land? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but storms will never hurt me. That too is a lie, isn't it? Storms are awful. They leave us feeling sad, mad, and completely disoriented. Well, in John 6, after hours of facing horrific weather, we read, quote, When they, the disciples, had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Similarly, Matthew's account reads, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Any of you guys pulling all-nighter lately fighting for your life? Just imagine how raw these guys must have felt. They had rode for several hours. And finally Jesus came in the fourth watch of the night. Meaning between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. And the passage says that they were scared out of their minds. So this all begs the question, at what point in our Christian journey did we come to believe that feeling pain or struggle or even fear was ungodly, unnecessary, or in some way represents a break in God's love for us? Perhaps it's a byproduct of modernity where facts are seen as more valid than feelings. Yet raw emotions, as we see in our passage and elsewhere in Scripture, are meant to be a part of our faith journeys. For instance, in Psalm 77, we read, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated. My spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? The picture here is a full throttle lament where a person is crying out for help with their hands raised high in a very raw, tough season of life. And what about Jesus? Did Jesus show pain, anguish, and deep sadness? You bet he did. Just look at Matthew 26. Facing an unspeakable death in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cries out to his disciples and God, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. And the passage continues. My, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, a picture of deep anguish and pain, this time by Jesus himself. You see, the point is our deepest and rawest emotions are not meant to be turned off. This is important when we come to Jesus. They're actually meant to be turned on and shuttle us to Jesus. Feelings are the conduits by which we not only express our needs to one another, they are the means by which we express our needs to God. As it's been said, let me put on my counselor hat here. As it's been said, they are the way intimacy or in to me see is made possible. And if Jesus experienced and expressed raw emotions in life, in love, and in prayer, we can too. This leads me to lie number three. If Jesus loves me, he will pluck me from the storm. Last year, our one son, Blaze, made the JV basketball team as an eighth grader, which he thought was quite the honor. Yet in the Sorensen, excuse me, yes, in the Sorensen household, we grow giants. It's true. But the truth is, Blaze still had a lot of growing to do in his development as a basketball player. And if you asked him today, he would still say he has a lot to grow in there. Now, with that backdrop, I'll never forget the call I received from my wife one afternoon last year when she said Blaze refused to get out of the car to go into the basketball practice. I could hear him in the background very upset saying, Mom, Dad, I'm done. And he wasn't going to go in. Apparently, the coaches had been making the boys do endless sprints, something called 17s. Anyone heard of 17s? These line drills. And if the whole team didn't make the sprints by a set time, they'd have to do them again and again and again. And Blaze was terrified to let his team down. He was ready to quit. Blaze wanted out of the storm. So what did I do? True story, I drove to Mount Pleasant. I met my wife and I invited or made Blaze get into my truck. Just the thought of those 17s had him in an emotional panic. But Blaze and I shared a good talk that day. In kind but direct words, I shared that Sorensen's don't give up, even if that simply means showing up to face whatever the day would bring. Additionally, I shared that I would go into the practice with him if that's what he wanted so he wouldn't have to face that day alone. So that afternoon, we got out of my truck and Blaze returned to practice, his teammates happy to see him, and I would later be told that none of the teammates, no one that day, had to run any sprints. Isn't that interesting? And then to cap the story off, 
I received a video of Blaze praying for his team just this last week as they went into their last game of the season. Now, I'd like to say I'm some super dad, but that's just not true. I'm just a boy who's now a man who has learned that character and faith are forged, not apart from the storm, but straight through the heart of the storms of life. Our passage concludes, listen to this. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water, excuse me, on the sea, and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now I need everyone to catch something that is a game changer. You ready, Maddie? This is a game changer, especially as we face storms. You ready, Andrew? When Jesus says, do not be afraid, he first identifies himself in a way that would have sent a shiver down the spines of his disciples. The phrase which reads, it is I, literally translates, I am. This is the exact phraseology and title God uses in the Old Testament to reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush of Exodus 3 and lead his people from slavery into the promised land. And it is the title through which all the power and promises of God find their footing. Thus, in the middle of the storm, Jesus comes to his followers in their desperation and provides unveiled illumination by saying, I am he, and I am here. The Lord himself, Yahweh. For the disciples, it would have been a burning bush, parting of the Red Sea, chariots of fire kind of moment. You see, the way of Jesus is not to pull us from the storm so we may find relief. No, the way of Jesus is to join us in the storm so we may know and trust his presence. So what this is teaching is this. Mandy, I am the one who will get you through this difficult season. Justin, I am the one who will get you through this difficult diagnosis. Rachel, I am the one who will get you through this difficult decision. Brian, I am the one who will get you through this difficult transition. And let us be clear about the one storm that we will all face someday, and that's the storm of death itself. Do we need to let that coming storm hold us hostage? Absolutely not. You see, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we're assured that nothing can separate us 
from the love of God, from Jesus himself. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, we read in Romans 8. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we wrap up this time, let's pull back and allow me to ask you two questions. First, Merriman's, Hart's, Hubler's, Tyson's, are you facing any storm in life right now? It might be relational, it might be professional, it might be at its core existential. Here's the thing. If you're in a bad spot, that's not necessarily a bad spot to be. In the words of Corey Tinboom, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And the second question is this. If you're facing a storm in life right now, will you cry out to Jesus and invite him into your boat? This passage is clearly inviting you and me to share our heart, our emotions, and our need for him today. Will you do that? Will you cry out to him today? Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's for a loved one. Will you trust that Jesus will hear you and come to you even if it's in the fourth watch of the night? Friends, the path from fear to faith cuts straight through the heart of the storm. For that is where we find Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are all facing something today. And if we're honest, some of us are just terrified. On behalf of those at home and those in the room, I lift my hands and we cry out collectively, saying, God, hear our prayer. Send your Son to be with us, to calm our fears, to calm whatever storm surrounds us. Would you bring us into a peaceful place through your very presence with us? Our greatest good is found in that place. We trust you both now and with the outcome. For we recognize nothing can separate us from your love through your son, in whose name we pray, amen.